Welcome to Beyond Bitcoin, a podcast about all things digital assets, the global communities they are creating, the generations that are using and investing in them, and the challenges faced by the nations that are seeking to regulate them. The content of this program is not to be taken as investment advice. My name is Derek Graham. I'm the CEO of Portal Asset Management, and my co-host is Nitin Gower, Director of IBM Digital Assets and CTO of Portal. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world, and welcome along to Beyond Bitcoin. And as usual, my friend and colleague is with me today, Nitin Gower. Hello, Nitin. Hey, Derek. Glad to be here. And I'm back in Austin, which is always good. And looking forward to today's juicy topic. It is a juicy topic. So for those of you who haven't been living under a rock and you've been seeing the crypto.com ads, you'll know their great saying, and that is, fortune favors the bold. It is a great saying. But at the same time, today we want to talk about risk. Because if you go where, boldly go where no man has gone before, without any protection or risk, you're in big trouble. And so we're going to talk about risk today. And this space has plenty of it. But risk really, I guess, has to be considered from a number of point of views. Are you putting $1,000 into the marketplace? Or are you putting a billion dollars into the marketplace? Because the risk does change on the way through. So for a moment, let's just have a look at what big institutional investors think about risk when they deploy across to this space. And that might give us a bit of guidance on where we should consider an overall investment strategy. And then as we progress, maybe, Nitin, we can talk a bit about how we actually build risk frameworks and deploy into them. So institutional investors look at this space and they're concerned immediately about diversity. One has to realize that when they're investing in equities, of course, they're investing in known quantities. These are either startup businesses that are hoping to aspire to something larger and become a business. They could be technology-driven businesses looking for an exit. They could be mining companies that are generating returns on mines or exploration companies that are going to explore and potentially sell to someone else. They're known determinants, they're known structures. And therefore, whenever one invests into them, they know what they're getting. In this case, in this space, they could be generating income from or investing in the likes of a gaming token, token based upon an inflationary trend structure in its tokenomics or a stable coin. They're so diverse. So diversity is a real challenge for incoming investors looking in this space. Valuation difficulties are very much a challenge because really there's no consensus on valuation approach across this space, partly because the space is so diverse. Regulatory dilemmas. Well, of course, for an institution, they look at this space and consider it just terminally unregulated. And in many, in many cases, that's a no-go zone full stop for them. And they can't see visibility on what a global regulation system might look like or whether there will be one. Big institutions like data modeling, they want a decade or two, if possible, of data prior to this so that they can data model how the equities market's moving, how a large equity is moving. In this particular case, there's very little data available by comparison. In many cases, the cryptocurrencies might only be two years old. They can't do stress testing like value at risk, et cetera. So data modeling is very challenging for them. And then illiquidity and trading costs. Well, Nitin, you know, if you and I are trading $5,000, 
there's normally a not a lot of problem relating to illiquidity. But if these big institutions are coming in and they're trading 500 million to a billion dollars into the space, all of a sudden illiquidity becomes problematic. So illiquidity is still an issue for these guys. And then finally, custodianship, clearing and settlement problems. You know, remember they're used to traditional structures, third party structures and solid custodians. And we know even with the giant custodians such as Gemini and Fireblocks, they don't provide custody for every token that's out there, leaving some tokens requiring cold wallets, other tokens being left on exchanges. Um, so there are always counterparty and custodian risk in it. So from an institution's point of view, they're still standing on the outside in many cases, trying to work out how to enter. And we might not be bewildered by the fact that they're really entering most of the time with Bitcoin because Bitcoin has some track record they can understand, some valuation metrics they can understand, and it's a size that they can probably enter and exit. So it has liquidity. But for them to start really deploying across the space, it's going to be challenging for them, isn't it, Nitin? So two questions. How does one analyze risk? And really, why would you invest in this space? <laughs> yeah, we, we, we could use a whole hour on this. And what's interesting, Derek, as you mentioned, that uh, if you were to ask a maximalist, and I'm not saying Bitcoin maximalist, but maximalists who are tied to a layer one protocol, who firmly believe in that's going to save humanity in general, uh, the question becomes, what risk? Bitcoin has no risk. It should always go up. And, this, you know, and, and, and that, that debate sort of ensues. Whereas if you look at the regulators, they see the entire space as a risky space because it doesn't have the fundamentals that they're used to looking at in, in equities and other traditional financial markets. And I think if you, again, look at institutional investors, as you rightly mentioned, so the approach that I have taken essentially, or that we have taken at, and, you know, at, at Portal Asset Management is that the view that I share is not just the individual who's tied to a certain maximalism and, and shares a perspective that a community, mm. which is largely a part of uh, supporting this, you know, this entire infrastructure and the token that goes with it and the ecosystem that evolved upon it. And we've had enough sort of conversations in terms of comparing them to nation states, attracting talent and attracting capital. Uh, yeah. All that is there, but I'm looking at this as a holistic industry in general. So all, for instance, all blockchain business networks have a spectrum of risk. Some of them, as you rightly mentioned, liquidity risk and ability for us to, your favorite terms of on-ramp, off-ramp, ability for us to maintain custody and as we grow the asset classes, crypto in general is the fifth asset class. Uh, it has its own sort of growing pains. It's reaching adolescence. It's gotten its own volatility risk. Then there are regulatory risks, um, which token is a utility versus which token is a security and how do we expose that risk? And while the individual investor may not be affected directly with it, institutional investors do have to care about this because there's a certain element of adherence to these regulations that we have to follow. Uh, which becomes a hallmark of investor protection of most of the regulatory framework that, that's, that's, that's around the various investment practices. And then you have, of course, the financial risk. Uh, we certainly uh, could spend an hour talking about the protocol risks or technology risks that is tied with AMMs and automa automated market makers, the total you know, locked you know, liquidity in, in, in the system, looking into the vulnerabilities that we've seen with this. Uh, so in many cases... The thinking that as we look into the base layer and we have taken this path of layering the entire ecosystem to make sense of it, to say that business network must devise a business and operational structure to remain profitable. And, and this goes back to the consensus mechanism, the tokenomics, 
that you described earlier. Mm. And they have to remain profitable and economically viable to meet the core objective of the business entity. And that's why I think when Ether goes up to an exponentially high value, it's detrimental to its own growth because suddenly now you have other Me Too players willing to fill in the gap for reduced transaction costs, which to me has always been detrimental to its growth. So that meeting the ROI for the investment stakeholders, which oftentimes are confused with token holders. So I think the what we what we have termed as business model risk framework or, or, or risk model frameworks acts as a vehicle to devise a mechanism to model and manage and mitigate risk in general, right? And I'm also, uh, and I'll say one more thing before I, I, I get your perspective is I, we, we aim to focus on a comprehensive risk modeling with, I think, an approach that views risk management as a portfolio and focus on not just the cost of compliance, but also improved profitability, valuation, creating better revenues, creating better returns. So we should view risk as an opportunity, but understanding deeper risk will help us mitigate some of the, those risk vectors that we talked about. But I'll pause here to see if that makes sense, that to me, I'm thinking risk as, as an avenue for us to differentiate ourselves because we have better understanding of the industry and better understanding of the other contributing vectors that contribute to what could be a systemic risk to this, you know, to this entire space. Exactly. So Nitin, you said uh, something there, which was that this is the fifth asset class. Yeah. So it's the first new asset class since the 1600s. And what comes with new is risk. And, yeah. and really looking for upside in this space is virtually, you know, it, it's rapidly growing exponential space. Upside is not the challenge. Downside is the challenge. Risk management is the challenge, is it not? And so therefore, navigating how you're going to manage your risk really is where you generate ultimately your longer term profits. I know that sounds yeah. odd. You're actually looking at the downside on a constant basis because in this space, the upside virtually takes care of itself if you've got a good thesis. So we, like any good fund manager, is constantly looking at risk. The difference is between us and maybe an equities fund manager is they're operating in an area that's totally known, it's mature, all the infrastructure's in place. In us, we need to be able to look at each one of these sectors and determine how these sectors operate and what the risk factors are in every sector that we look at. How do we do that? Give us an insight on that because it's what you do all the time in this space. Yeah, yeah, no, no, this is a great point. And I think to me, you know, this is this is our secret sauce and, and what we want to do in this case in terms of, so there are six steps that fundamentally I like to convey to our, to our audiences here, which we employ on a regular basis and understanding the space. So first step is understanding the landscape, which means what are these networks? How, how do we classify these technologies? Because similar to our existing equities market, there are industry groups. And there are correlation between the industry groups. And I always give an example of the fact that when the gas prices go up, the adjunct industries that depend upon the price plus have a cost impact and actually has a, a downstream impact on the consumer effort that goes, with, you know, that, that goes with it. So classification of tokens and the areas they represent is a really, really important part. And mm. we spend every four months in getting our arms around it. And I'll give you an example, Derek, that... When we start the journey, I had about eight classification criteria. For instance, we had layer zero, layer one, layer two. We had D five. We had you know these are cl traditional classical classes. Hmm. And when we did this exercise, I say about three months back, we had seventeen different categories. 
So within a matter of eight months, we had gaming tokens, we had NFTs, we had NFT layer ones, we had you know entities who are looking at data, who are looking at telco, uh, Helium, for example, and looking at game tokens, looking at platforms that support gaming, uh, looking at metaverse, uh, looking at data sharing platforms, uh, looking at Web 3.0, which is sort of decentralizing. And we spent some time last week on this topic. I mean, decentralizing some of the element of compute storage interconnect. So CoinDesk has something called DAX, which is you know digital asset classification system, similar to what Bloomberg historically has done with equity space. And we ourselves, you know, for portal asset management, have devised a structure that allows us to understand the industry as it evolves. Mm. And the reason why I think that's important as a first step is it gives you arms around what does a token do, what space you're in, and what are the economic imperatives of that industry. So for example, if you're in Web3O, then the impact of DeFi should either be minimal because there are there's DeFi economics that, that, that are play at DeFi elements, but if you're in NFT space or if you're in any of the space that relies upon data, video, and decentralization of those elements, then the Web3O consumption should be much higher because the whole idea there is that if you're creating content, that content should be stored in a truly decentralized storage mechanism. So there's a direct correlation between those two domains as opposed to what would happen in financial you know, primitives that would, that would take place in DeFi world. And that's first step is classifying this. And we spend a lot of time in taking the right tokens and understanding how it fits in, defining this. And I think everybody has some layering mechanism, but the whole point is that whatever is your, is your conviction, I think we should do that. Defining the whole space, which lets us understand how this industry is evolving. The second step, I think, is understanding the blockchain and DLT layers that helps understand the dependency and the risk uh, and other elements such as revenue models, tokenomics, barriers to entry, and above all, regulation. So we have seen that since inception of Bitcoin and Ether and how CFTC classified one as, as utility token. And as many tokens evolved, some of them were centralized entities. That's a risk. And I think, I think any fund manager should not knowingly expose uh, with especially the regulatory risk, because you have little control over those. But then also looking at the fact that if there are risks that you're taking, you have to take the risk with conviction only because you understand the revenue models of a particular token, you understand the token economic structures, and you understand that that industry has to grow exponentially, like, for example, Layer Zero and Web3.0 or the traditional sort of VC cloud entities who are providing the infrastructure for the block demon and alchemy of the world, who are building this infrastructure, allowing people to be able to participate which is such an essential part of this industry. The third thing I would, I would look into is building a, what we call a quadratic model, which includes things like maturity. And the reason why this is important because, I mean, this industry, Derek, has hundreds of projects popping up on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. And there's a risk for nascency of these projects. Um, so I'm looking at uh, the risk modeling tied to maturity, which is high and low looking at what's high and what's low. And again, conviction comes into play and investment strategy, which is long and short. So for example, Bitcoin and Ether, I think there's a normal understanding. These are long running assets. They have been there for some some time. And the term hodling and building comes from the fact that people are okay going long on these assets because there are these sort of market trends and curves that go back and forth. But as long as you hold on to it, the exposure is a lot less as opposed to fairly nascent to new projects that may have a very short-term upside potential, but there are long-term risks associated with it, whether it's regulatory risk or whether it's protocol risk or whether it's shifting in the community to a new project. And that's the model that I look into is it'll help group the tokens in DLT layers, allowing us to devise a classification-based risk appetite and overall thesis of the investment focus. So if your thesis is that we're going after long-term 
as opposed to a, a diversified portfolio, this sort of matrix helps us. The, quadra the quadratic model, which is the four boxes, helps us uh, sort of frame this in a better way. The fourth thing is around devising a research metric. And this is, to me, has taken the most amount of time, Derek, when we look into technical analysis. These are relative st your strength index and looking into stock to four, four models, moving averages looking at fundamental analysis, which is token economics, network value, transaction values, simple moving averages. But in addition to these numerical numbers, which can be modeled and could be quantified and codified into some mathematical model, we look into transaction analysis, things like social sentiment analysis. I mean, much of this industry is driven by meme coins. And much of the industry is driven by community participation. Much of the industry mm. is driven by the ecosystem. Uh, is also driven by code rep repo, because many of these projects are decentralized projects. They rely upon community to write code, look into the quality of code. Uh, and, and many of these functions lead to, which is different from traditional equities research, as you were saying a few minutes mm. back, that it's enabled by transparency and community around a certain project. So we begin to add those metrics in terms of social intelligence, the amount of code that's gone into it, uh, how active is the community. Because if the community eventually begins to die, and perfect example is Dogecoin and Shibucoin, these were meme coins that, We've seen, we all know the history behind it, but what utility do they provide and how many people are behind that? And I would say this though, Derek, that if you're a venture fund and these and other things like founders do matter, if you're defining a token investor, you rely upon market data. And that's another challenge which we can, we can table for another day, but hierarchy of data and market data granularity becomes really, really vital uh, to keep up with the equity research kind of work that the industry has, has, has matured over the past two decades in building this mathematical model and quantum mental analysis that we do for equities. And we're gonna mimic that for token economics. So with all these six things that we discussed, and I'll, I'll, I promise I'll, I'll shut up in a minute, Derek, <laughs> is that with all this at our disposal, at a data collection framework, we then devise a research framework. And all this amounts to a risk model framework so you can see it's quite comprehensive, a balanced approach to consistently gaining information, equilibrium, and the conviction that drives us to take risk to diversify or to mitigate risk. Uh, I'll pause here. I know I've said a lot, but those are the six things we would do as a broad level framework. Of course, there's a lot of devil in the detail, which we will certainly not discuss in this call, but uh, that's the length to which we go in looking at this industry and understanding this to its core uh, and then devising what risk do we take and what risk do we mitigate and what risk do we take with conviction, if that makes sense. Makes total sense. Uh, you know, this is, a, this is a process of mapping, isn't it? You know, you've been given a new country and it's large. That's all you know. And it has a boundary. You have to map it. You've got to map it. You've got to determine it. You've got to explore it. And then, and then you've got to work out what is the best way to live, cohabitate, exploit, be involved with each one of these, these countries that you create. We've often talked about the sovereign nations associated with this space too, which yeah. is the sovereign nations of Ethereum and, and Terra Luna and, and um, um, uh, Avalanche, you've just been a conference in, in uh, Barcelona. And so there's a lot for us to do that, which is map the space, determine the metrics of the space, and then once that's known, you can go in and determine which are the best players. And as you know that you know, the base strategy of, of um, Portal's Radiance Fund is that it looks at 
um, investing in the best of class in each one of these sectors. And it's so easy to say that. You could do this on equities very easily by just looking at Morningstar and coming up with a thesis and deploying by the afternoon. Um, but in this space, <laughs> determining the best metrics is not based upon size or capitalization. It's based upon so many determinants that you're doing. And they can only be, um, they can only be analyzed when you've got a set of criteria to analyze each one of these metrics in each sector and the broad sectors, of course, not the 17 that we review, but the broad sectors, are layer one, layer two, web 3.0, gaming, metaverse, decentralized finance, non-fungible token um, exchanges and transactions. And they're the broad sectors, but when you're looking at 17, there's a lot more. So in, in essence, we map out the territory we then explore the territory and determine what is the, the best deployment area. And then we look at the metrics of each one of those tokens to determine that those metrics are the right metrics for us to deploy to. Sounds easy, Nitin. <laughs> Hardly. Um, so there are two things, right? If you, look, if you remember, when I, was, when I was doing my finance, we always compared the typical so use case where a monkey would throw darts at certain thing and they would have a stock pick versus an educated and yes, yes. you would over time you would you know and this is true a true sort of experiment over time uh the monkey who didn't know know anything about the markets um you know had had probably the same performance level as an educated actuarist who understood the market and had mathematical models to predict and have predictive models and everything else and i would say that that while there's some truth to that because there's a, there's a whole element of luck and this is starting from what you mentioned you know luck luck favors the bold mm -hmm. uh, or fortune favors the bold in your case. But in the adages, it goes is that, you know, the luck favors the bold is risk and reward. And I think we hear stories about both stories, like people who've taken enormous risk and been rewarded um, and people. And I, what I don't know is, are these risks calculated? Are these risks um, are simply a fluke or, or, or just a, by chance that they were able to exploit the right timing, right place, making the right decision. There's a lot of that too. But I think when we, we have a fiduciary responsibility, uh, we also have responsibility for, of, of money management where I think this risk model allows us to have the guardrails in place, especially around, around regulatory and, and protocol risks, which means that while the returns may not be astronomical as, as some of the entities offer and you hear these amazing stories, I think what risk model allows us to do is mitigate the downstream impact of things going bad. So while you, you, we may not always see the upside of it, uh, I think when, when the markets, when you see the downside of the market, uh, for many reasons, whether it's protocol risk or whether we begin to see things like wormhole that actually happened around it. So to me, I've always said this, Derek, that risk modeling is about defining a model and quantifying risk and then devising model that that allows us to classify profile risks. It's about understanding domains, uh, which is industry technology operations, as you mentioned. Mm. Uh, specific risk and devising models to evaluate impact of the entire system. So for example, what happens when Bitcoin takes a nosedive? Well, it is a marquee asset class. It is a asset class that actually has a lot of dependency and a lot of correlation with other asset classes. Mm. How do we understand that, right? And an implication of layered risk element implies that an asset uh, that to assess a systemic risk, and I use the word systemic risk, uh, we did in one of the episodes talk about the impact of stable coins coming into this ecosystem. And we believe that stable coin, while they provide liquidity to the much needed sort of illiquid crypto space, 
they also bring in the global macro challenges of inflation and money supply and interest rates. And so while money comes in, money leaves based on the interest rate equation, it does impact demand supply curves of the crypto markets. So some of these are sort of impact of the entire system and the implication of the layered risk uh, to me will help us stay in the guardrails to say, we should, while it's enticing, we should have the discipline to not embark on this path because the risk model doesn't allow us to do it unless we have a compelling reason. And again, we go through justifying that to our investors and justifying that investment committee to say we're taking this risk because we have this conviction and we need to follow this conviction, if that makes sense at all. Look, you know, um, I think we're all lovers of movies and, uh, you know, we can watch a movie and, and critique how well it was directed or produced or whatever else and how enjoyable it was. And we know the story if we're awake and we know the story watching the movie. But on the other hand, we don't know the education of the director, the producer. We don't know how the writer came about writing that information. We don't know the background in so much of it. And that's a little bit like the space. It's easy to turn around and do some basics here. But what is the background to how it works is extraordinarily deep. So by example, common sense for an investor would be, if you find this space interesting, then learn as much as you can about it. Determine a sector that you want to invest in. So maybe it's DeFi or maybe it's layer one protocols or maybe it happens to be Web 3.0. Learn, 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 learn everything you can about that one sector so that you are best knowledge you can possibly do. And within that, that's getting general consensus, which is Reddit and and, uh, Medium and other um, avenues like that. And that is analyzing the, the metrics of it. And then you might have a decision, this is a great sector. So my thesis as an individual investor is that I want to deploy into um, Web 3.0 and I'm going to deploy to what I think is the best of tokens and then you deploy to them. And that just makes good common sense. But how you determine those metrics is one issue. And the second issue is what is your risk profile? Uh, Because I've just told someone to invest directly into one sector when diversification might be terribly important. And so we know what the movie looks like, but how it's made up and how it's created is the challenge. And, uh, and you either, um, obviously you either hand that across to professional teams that have knowledge in the space, or you try your best to accumulate knowledge um, in two levels probably. And one level is just the diversification across all the tokens, understanding as best you can how the market works. Um, and the next level is a deep dive into the, into the space or your thesis that you want to do. Does that make sense for the average investor, Nitin, or would you add something to that? No, it does, uh, Derek, and I think, yeah, it absolutely does, and I think fundamentals should always matter, Uh, and I'm maybe, you can call me old school, and those fundamentals, which means that otherwise I could just go to Las Vegas and gamble uh, Mm. without understanding of, and just have the Russian roulette, or actually just roulette, not Russian roulette, uh, be able to gamble and, and make money from it. And I just think that, for example, as we are analyzing this, I'm also looking at different data sources. And that's a huge problem in this industry Yes, that you have so much data and it's openly, easily available, which creates mm. another interesting problem, which is converse of equities research. Because suddenly now you have to rely upon data, data providers, which here, things like your raw data sources and your, you know, what you would get in, in, and then you rely on aggregators. And you see a whole new family of services uh, that makes your life easier uh, emerge. And so while it's a business opportunity, I think this makes it quite complicated to consume that much data 
aggregate the data, figure out what analysis do we apply. So this becomes a really uh, interesting data science experiment, Derek, allowing us to, again, uh, be able to extract the best value and have the best results with minimum amount of risk for our clients. Sometimes that works and sometimes, you know, the other market forces that we constantly consume to make this modeling better, I think. So, so by example, we engage um, Petros, who's a data scientist, and uh, he's an exceptional gentleman and has deep knowledge on, on, um, on data science and quant trading, et cetera. And so we will look at an investment and decide that the thesis is correct within our thesis, the sector is solid, and the metrics of this particular um, investment or token is, fits our metrics. The next thing we have to do is to decide whether there is sufficient volume of trading and whether the metrics around that um, token uh, are, are adequate for us to invest in. Maybe you could talk a little bit around that and, and what we look at. That was a brilliant exercise. And I think what we did with, uh, and Petros is just pure brilliant in terms of, and we spend a bunch of time in terms of, I said, okay, I'm going to go through. So you know how we, we have our thesis in terms of maturity. This is the, the, the second step which is going after the quadratic model and looking at maturity of the project and looking at the investment strategy, long, short. And based on that thesis, we came up with, a, you know, this is for Radiance, looked up into the 20, a, a collection of pick of 25 tokens, which, look, which had criteria such as the project has to be, have a certain market cap. The project has to be in, in, in business operational uh, for four plus years. It needs to have so many ecosystem players. The community has to be so big and all that good stuff. And my manual, Simple Mind, went and picked about 25 different tokens that met one, first investment thesis. Second thing is, uh, while we're looking at this token, we want to make, make sure that the token doesn't have regulatory exposure, which means it has enough sort of guidance in terms of CCI index, which is an index that we use to look at probability of that token being security because we don't want to have that exposure to the investors and so on and so forth. And based on that thinking, I came up with 25 little tokens. And Petros codified some of that thing into a a data model, uh, and uh, he's uh, he's certainly a time series expert. He looks into figuring out signal and noise and removing some of the other element from the collection of asset classes available to us based on the classification. And after codifying it, the system spat out about 25 tokens. And what is interesting that we found was that we had a 75% match between a human, that's me, going out there and doing all this. Of course, it took me longer than to Petros because all he wanted to do was consume the data, build a model, test the model several times, and now it's a repeatable process. Whereas if it were to rely on Nitin, my mind changes, my thinking changes, I come from a conference, I'm bullish on one particular thing. So those are influences in my head, which the model is oblivious of, good and bad. The model is consistent in its, in, in its output. Whereas I'm influenced by a conference, I'm influenced by who I talk to, I'm influenced by reading a blog, reading a whole thing, writing my own thesis. So I think that, you know, but what's remarkable of that exercise was that we have about 25% of picks were identical because our framework, which is the step three, the model that we had for maturity and the investment strategy, that went and picked based on the enormous amount of data that we got from the likes of token terminals and the likes of nomics and like of some of the data sources that we have used internally. And that to me was just fantastic that even if we don't rely on human being and if I were to augment me, which it's hard to replace me, Derek, you know that. But, <laughs> but the whole point is that we can use the model to come to near human perfection at some point. 
Uh, and then eventually have someone like Mark or the CIO look into and finally give its stamp of approval. Mm. Uh, and that's where we have the human acumen and the human conviction sort of overrule the mathematical model because at the end of the day, investing is all about conviction. Uh, it's all about what we feel. It's, it's a gut feel that should drive it as opposed to purely mathematical model. But we view that as a purely an aid is using data science to aid human decision-making and not, or augment human decision-making, not replace it, if that makes sense, Mark. Yeah, that, that makes total sense. Um, <clears throat> what is, you know, what we're hearing, of course, is the difference between um, an, a, an amateur enthusiast wanting to invest in the space and a team with a diversified set of skills that are all approaching the space like humans do with a different set of eyes. And the culmination of that provides the, the outcome. And so um, I found it fascinating watching that occur, seeing some really clever people like yourself work in teams and, uh, and, and come up with solutions. And, um, and it's been a joy. Now, maybe we can sort of step past that. So, so you know, what we've done there, of course, is that that team has come together to create uh, what we are referring to as the Radiance Multi-Strategy Fund. And, uh, you know, that information is available, you know, with Portal. But mm -hmm. when you're talking about um, people investing in the space, um, you know, I've, I've often, you know, I, I had a, a, a great friend of mine approach me the other day and he said, I'd like to come along to one of your blockchain breakfasts that we do once a month. And these are informal gatherings of a cross-section of different people that, uh, that are investors and entrepreneurs and developers, et cetera. And he said, because I was explaining to my 12-year-old son what it takes to invest in equities. And he said, I just had a moment. I just suddenly realized what he should be learning about is not a mature marketplace like equities as his core investment. He should be learning about his future, which is digital assets. And so, so with that, he started to, to learn. I think that is a, a really important for anyone listening to this. This is, a, this is a task of learning. The more you learn, the more you mitigate risk. Um, in a market that's exponentially growing, making profit is not the challenge. It's not losing is the challenge. And so, so my suggestion to all is, is learn, learn, learn. If you're going to diversify, um, sorry, if you're going to deploy what you consider to be hurt money, large amounts of money, maybe give that to uh, a fund that's got a strategy that you like. Um, but if you're going to invest in the space and learn about the space and, and the money is something that you can afford to lose, then this is about the educational process. And unfortunately, losing money is part of that educational journey in this space. Um, so, so this is a topic I'd, I'd love to talk about more because of course uh, risk is, is in the eye of the beholder um, and, and also it depends on so many things, timing, sectors, um, amounts of money, et cetera. Um, but it's a topic I think we should do again along the way. Nitin, what do you think? No, no, I think we should dive deeper. I mean, there's something which I've, at least all of us have dedicated a few years in understanding the various things and coming to this to this juncture where we can comfortably talk about it. I'm pretty positive, as you mentioned, Derek, we have a long way to go and learn a lot more. And that's why I think we spend enormous amount of time in talking to experts, going to these events and conferences and learning about where this industry is heading, because it is not just risk about investing. It's also about utility. These things are solving some grave problems of our times. 
and what is the utility that it brings? And then comes investment risk and everything else, which means, are you solving a problem? Which is where the fundamental looking into this comes really, really handy, I think. So yes. spot on. I think we should learn, continue learning about this space. And again, we help our, our networks and both learn and learn from them, which I think should be a continual exercise. Yes, very much so. So I hope this has been interesting to those that are listening. You're always welcome to communicate with us, of course, along the way. The area of risk is something we live in every single day. That's life. Um, and how you navigate that risk is, uh, is, is really the success. Um, and as that large digital asset trading company says, fortune favours the bold. <laughs> we'll see you next week. Good way to end it, Derek. <laughs> Bye for now. We hope you enjoyed our weekly conversation. If you have any questions, comments, or suggested topics, please feel free to connect with either Nitin or myself on nitin at portal.am or Derek at portal.am. Feel free to subscribe and share with like-minded friends. Stay well, inquisitive, and engaged. See you next week. Bye for now.